entitling this New Priest Equals New Way. Uh, new Priest Equals New Way. Hebrews 6 and 20, just read this one verse. It says, Wherefore the forerunner has entered for us. And then it tells us who that is, even Jesus. And it says he's become high priest, not just priest, but high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so today I want us to look at what it really means uh, for Jesus to be our priest. How many of you as a believer, as a Christian, would say that Jesus is your high priest? Can I just see your hand? If you, if you claim him as your high priest. So listen, to claim him as your high priest is to unclaim every other priest. Okay? Because you can't have but one high priest. You can't have two high priests or three high priests. So a lot of Christians don't even know really what they are saying when they declare that Jesus Christ is my high priest. Because if they really knew what that meant, then a lot of other things that they claim, they can't claim. Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. Father, I love you. Thank you for the power of God that is in your spirit. And I thank you, Lord God, that today that you would confirm your word with signs following, that this church would be edified, built up, strengthened, and that Jesus Christ would be glorified, for he deserves all glory and all honor, for all power and dominion is in him and through him. And we bless you for the victory that he's won through the finished work of the cross. In Jesus' mighty name, we say amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Uh, today, Christians, just from every walk of life, if they claim to be Christian, uh, they all regard uh, Jesus Christ as their high priest. But now listen to me. But according to the law, Jesus Christ as high priest absolutely makes no sense. Uh, for thousands of years... The Old Testament priests came from one place, and that's the tribe of Levi, the Levites. And in fact, God forbid anybody to ever try to be or function as a priest if they were not a Levite. And in fact, anybody that ever tried to do that, even if they were a king of Israel, one of the kings of Israel tried to go in and function as a priest one time. And when he did that, he was struck with leprosy. And, 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 and so God never allowed, he forbid the crossing over of those. A king couldn't be a priest. A priest couldn't be a king. A prophet couldn't be a priest. So to be a priest in the old covenant, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And you also, to be a high priest, you had to be the son of another high priest. And, uh, but their priesthood was always temporary because they always died. And then you had to get another priest in there because that one died and there had to be another one. And so... Why did Jesus' priesthood make no sense? Because he's not from the tribe of Levi. So he is an illegal, illegitimate, disqualified, by the Bible, in the Old Testament, priest. Can't be a priest. Most people miss this. This is one of the reasons the Jews had a great stumbling block in following him. Because he had no Levitical authority. Uh, he was from the tribe of Judah. Now, what does the Bible say under the law about the priest from the tribe of Judah? Nothing. It says nothing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 13. Look at what it says. Now, he's right. Hebrews is to the who? To the Hebrews. That's to the Jews. Look in verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. He's talking about Jesus. He belongs to another tribe. From which, look here, no man has officiated at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. The Bible says absolutely nothing and never gives a hint that there can ever be any priest, much less a high priest from any other tribe but the tribe of Levi. And here Jesus comes and he's born in the tribe of Judah, of which no priest has ever arisen, can't be that, God forbid it. Kind of a dilemma, isn't it? Uh, why would God do that? Why would God do this? Why, why would he cause Jesus? How many knows that God had 
had to, had to say over what tribe Jesus would be born of. So why would God cause Jesus to be born into the tribe of Judah and not the tribe of Levi? It would have made it a lot easier for the Jews to have accepted his ministry had he been from the tribe of Levi. Why would God do this? I mean, he's like set up for trouble right out of the gate. Apparently, God wasn't looking for a smooth transition. Apparently, God wasn't looking for a succession of priesthood. God decided he would use an unqualified, by the law, priest to turn the world upside down. God was saying very loudly that there is a new priest in town. You heard there's a new sheriff in town? Well, God said there's a new priest in town. And it, listen, and if you change the priest, then you, the whole system has to change. Hebrews chapter 7 and 12 says, For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. So when you change the priesthood, the whole system is under change. You don't have the same law. God is telling us as loud as he can tell us that Jesus and the law don't mix. You cannot mix these two. They're not even from the same planet. Now, now Christians all over, Baptist, Methodist, every, all Christians all over claim Jesus as their high priest of their salvation. And, and they also claim, then in the same breath, many of them, that the law is still, uh, you know, applied for us today. Jesus can't officiate the law. Only a Levite can administer the Ten Commandments. Only a Levite can minister at the altar of the law. Jesus can't because he's not of that tribe. If some of you get this, you'd already be more happy than you are right now. You can't mix the law and Jesus. Romans 10 and 4 Chapter 10, verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, it's not the end of the law that it doesn't exist, but it's the end of the law for folks that are trying to be righteous by obeying rules. The Bible says the Ten Commandments are still lawful, Paul said in 1 Timothy, if one uses the law lawfully. Most of the church uses the Ten Commandments and all the law, which are 613 commandments in total, illegally, unlawfully. They ain't a human in shoe leather ever has kept the Ten Commandments, ever. Nobody. I don't care what they say. You can go up to any creek. You believe in the Ten Commandments? Oh, yes, I believe in the Ten Commandments. You believe you keep them? Oh, yes, I keep the Ten Commandments. And then right behind that, don't, I don't advise this, but you can say, you a lie. You just broke one of them. Because you lied. How many commandments are there? Ten. Well, it's 613. But I'm talking about engraved with God's finger in stone. Ten. The fourth one says, remember to keep the Sabbath holy. It's the only one that says remember, and that's the very one that we don't remember and we, everybody breaks. Because if you do anything from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, mow your yards, talk on your cell phone, walk more than, than a half a mile, uh, turn on your stove, cook a meal, drive to town, uh, do anything, clean a house, wash a load of clothes, do anything, you just broke the, the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. I don't care what anybody told you. So how many people do you think keeps the Ten Commandments? And by the way, the Bible says if you ever break one of the commandments, and that includes the 613, you're guilty of breaking every one of them. Do you see how hopeless that is? And the commandments were given by God for that purpose to make you hopeless. Actually, it says in Romans it was given to make the people hush that tried to claim that they were right because they obeyed some rules. Okay? So think about every Christian that claims Jesus as their high priest of their salvation, that he's the high priest of my profession of faith, okay? And yet they also try to demand that the law, what are you saying, lawlessness, pastor? No, I'm not saying, you know, I, I am for thou shalt not murder. Put me down, check, put a check by my name. I don't think you should kill people, okay? 
put me down for thou shalt not steal and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm for all that, but I'm not trying to obtain my rightness with God by doing those things. Okay? There can be all kind of arguments, and there's going to always be arguments, I guess, until Jesus comes back. You know, do we live by grace or do we live by law or do we live like most Christians do by a mixture of law and grace? Most of us was raised in a mixture. But this is one fact that I don't hardly ever hear anybody presenting, and that is the lineage of Jesus Christ. This lineage screams that the law cannot be mixed with grace, and, and it's a whole new way of relating to God. Now, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, talks about God divorcing Israel because they, prayed, they played the harlot and they committed harlotry or adultery, he says. So listen to me. Listen, God divorced them. Do I need to read the verse? Or they probably got it behind my head or not? Did they not? They don't. I'm not, did they do? <clears throat> well, you can see it. Why should I have to read it then? God gave them a certificate of divorce. God divorced them. So for all you divorced people that feel like you're, you know, you're less than because you've been divorced, God's been divorced. God's a divorcee. Divorcee, well, I don't know, whatever they say. God not only is divorcee or divorcee, he initiated the divorce. See, when two people enter into a covenant, when me and my wife entered into our marriage covenant 37 years plus ago, that covenant is only as strong as my and her commitment to that covenant. So if one of us is weak in our faithfulness or commitment, that makes the covenant weak. Is that right? Is that right? You understand that, right? So God made a covenant with Israel. It was out at Mount Sinai when the law was given. And in fact, they didn't even wait for God to give all the law through Moses. They just heard part of it, and then they responded like this. All that you have said will we obey. Anybody knows that's in the Bible besides me say amen? All right, they, so they entered into a covenant. So the covenant was between God and Israel. Let me just say this. The Ten Commandments was never given to any people except the Jews or the Israelites. So if you're not a blood-born, blood lineage Israelite, the Ten Commandments ain't never been for you, no way. Selah, pause, reflect, meditate, aggravate, initiate, whatever eight you need to do. Aggra you know, listen, the law's never been for you unless you're a Jew from Israel. It's never been yours anyway. you just reaching there and claiming something that ain't even yours. What it is, our truth. No, it ain't Christ. I just told you it's the end of the law. Romans 10 and 4. So, so you, you got to see this. So the covenant is his only strong. So God says in Colossians that he found fault with not the covenant, but with the people. And because God found fault with the people, they couldn't keep the covenant, he come up with a new covenant. It's a better covenant. And Jesus is the guarantee of that better covenant with better promises. God never intended that the law or rule keeping would make a person right with him. The Bible says that in Galatians that if Paul said if there, God said if there had been a covenant, if there had been a, a, a law that could have made a person righteous, surely I would have delivered it. The law kills. The letter killeth. But the Spirit is what gives life. When you're born of the Spirit, that's what makes you right with God. Not your rule keeping. Not your obeying rules. And, and, and when you're born of the Spirit, you will not be lawless. Because you'll be in love with your husband. See, I don't need a law. I don't need to get up every morning and read a law of thou shalt not to have a good marriage. What keeps my marriage good is I'm in love with a woman. That right there. So I don't need your rule book. I don't need you telling me, well, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. I don't need all that. There's something greater than rules. Don't make me come down there. I just pray, in the church all the time, oh, I just pray that y'all would pray for me that I'd be disciplined. I just need, I'd be disciplined to read my Bible and to come to church and to, to give and I just, I just pray that, you know, I just want to be disciplined to do those things. All right? And in church, that flies really good. People go, okay, well, I'll pray for you. 
What if you heard me saying to some of the brothers in the church, say, brothers, I need y'all to pray for me that I'd be disciplined, that I'd love my wife. That I'd be disciplined to go home, you know, like when I get off work, spend time with her. I'd be disciplined to kiss her and hug her. Be disciplined to take care of her. Y'all just pray that I'd have discipline to do all those things that I should do. What would you think that they, what do you think about my marriage? Not too hot, right? Well, he, well, why do you talk like that about your husband, Jesus? See, on, the only people that need discipline is people that ain't in love. If you ain't in love, you need discipline. I'm not saying discipline doesn't have a place in the life of a Christian. That's a, but not in, in the context of what I'm speaking about today. It don't have, there's, some, there's higher than discipline. That's why people don't understand grace. Go, well, he just said you can live any kind of way. You can just sin. Because they don't, they don't know nothing about love. They're not in love with God. they got a religion. They're trying to obey rules. They're making it. Oh, I got to go to church. Really, you got to. Really. That's how you talk. Well, y'all come. Oh, we got to go to church. We got to pray. Say your prayers. What do you, you think God's an idiot? You think God don't see the motive of your heart? What do you, come on. See, Malachi, see, the church misses this. Let, let me just say this, Hebrews 7 to 22. When, when God marries you under this new covenant, what he's saying is I'll never divorce you again, no matter how much of a harlot you become. Because God says in Malachi that I hate divorce. And we forget that God hates divorce. And when he's talking about it in Malachi, he's not talking about just between a married man and a woman. God says, I hate divorce. And I hate that relationship that I divorced Israel because of their unfaithfulness. Hebrews 7 and 22 says, but Jesus is, by so much more, Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. And so what God is telling, this new way eliminates the possibility of God ever divorcing us so when Malachi listen listen to me now so when Malachi says that God hates divorce yet th th there there are those who claim that we can lose our salvation and they are saying that God will divorce us if we don't perform up to his standard the only way you can lose your salvation if God is a liar and goes back on his commitment never to divorce us again and now he says, because I don't like the way you behaved, I'm divorcing you. Hebrews 6 and 18 is where God entered into the covenant that says, I'll never divorce you. Verse 18 says that, that by two immutable, what does the word immutable mean? Unchangeable. Cannot change it. Two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Now notice the phrases here. So two unchangeable things, impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation, that's peace, contentment, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have, look at all these strong words, as an anchor of the soul. It's sure, it's steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, listen to me, it ain't about you. It's not about me. So this new covenant is not the old covenant with a paint job. This is a really totally, radically new covenant. And our, listen, our performance is not the basis of this new covenant. Because listen to me, we're not the one exchanging vows this time with God. We're not entering into a covenant with God. God found fault with the people's inability to be faithful to the first covenant. He says he found fault with the first covenant, therefore the necessity of the new covenant. Is that right? And so God says, I, I, I tried this covenant with you, and you made a commitment to me, but you didn't keep yours. You are not able to keep yours. Therefore, since you didn't keep yours, I divorced you. Now, I'm going to enter into a covenant that is immutable, unchangeable, steadfast, secure, like an anchor. You can't mess it up because you ain't in it. Those two immutable things is the day that God swore to God. 
God said when I could not swear by a greater, I swore to myself. I promised myself on their behalf that I would never divorce them again, that I would never leave them again, that I would never forsake them again, that I would never be angry with them again, that I would never pull my kindness from them again, that I would never not forgive them of their sin, that I would always be with them even to the end of the world. That's the God that we serve right now. You can't mess this up. Because God, if you will, if you need a picture, God entered into a covenant with Jesus. Jesus is God. God promised God that I forgive them, that I'll never be angry with them, that I won't keep any record of their sins against me. Who? that's a good covenant. That's a new covenant. That's a new whole way of relating to God. I'm not, God's not relating to me based on my performance or my sin. He's relating to me based on his son. Because we couldn't be faithful. But God says, even when you're unfaithful, I'll be faithful. That's what the Bible says. Even when you're faithless, I'll be faithful. Even though you don't keep it. Because if you understood the biblical definition of covenant, when, you, when two people enter into a covenant, it's not just those two people. It's their seed. I said it's their seed. So you and I benefit greatly from the covenant that God made with himself because you're the seed of God. It's the, it's the faith of God. And if you have faith in Jesus, you are of the seed of God, the seed of Abraham. How did Abraham obtain his righteousness? Through faith. He believed God. And it was accounted to him, the Bible says, for righteousness. Abraham is 450 years before the law. He lived 400 years before Moses was even born. There was no law until Moses came. That's why when God dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he never rebuked them for their sin. Never mentions it. And they were sinning like crazy. He never judged them for their sin. Nobody ever got punished, judged, or that. And there's only two exceptions. If you're a big student here, I want to be, there's only two exceptions. And they're not exceptions as much as they're removals of cancer that will destroy the whole body, the whole, the whole human race. And God, through the flood and through what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, removed a cancer that would try to prevent the Messiah from even being born. But when Abraham lied and said, she's my sister, twice, God never said, you shouldn't do that, son. It's not nice to lie. God did tell the king, Pharaoh, that took her, Sarah's, into his harem. God said, I'll kill you. You touch her, you're a dead man. But as far as dealing with his kids, the ones he had a covenant with, the Jews, through the Abrahamic covenant, he never even said boo to about sin. Isaac comes along, lies, the same lies daddy told. God never says you shouldn't lie. Never judges him. He's never punished for anything he does. You got Abraham having multiple wives, multiple relationships. You think God's like winked at that, you know, back then and like, you know, no, they were under grace. God's always been a God of grace. He didn't start being grace when Jesus showed up. He's always been grace. Jacob's whole life is a lie. God never judges him for that. There, there is, you can't give me a speeding ticket unless you've got the speed limit posted. Unless there's a law that says 55, I can ride 85 and you can't give me no ticket. That's why they go to trouble putting all these signs up. Because you can't give me a ticket if there ain't no sign. If we ride 10 miles this way and 10 miles that way, and I, you got me beside the road with your blue light, and you can't show me a sign to tell me what speed limit is, you can't give me no ticket. You got to have it posted. And not only do you have to have the law posted, you got to tell me when I enter into your county that you're going to check my speed by your detection devices, your, your radar. That's why when you go into any county that runs radar, you'll see another sign that says, you know, you know speed detected, you know, by, by radar. They have to post it. They can't give you no ticket. You understand that the Christ is the end of the law. You see, some of you are getting pulled over by the devil. And he buffaloes you with the law, and he accuses you. 
Listen to what the Bible says about Satan. He says he is the accuser of the, not sinners. Accuser of who? The brethren. Who is that? Christians. And not only does it say he accuses the brethren, but it says he accuses them day and night. That's 24. 7. Y'all. So best I can tell, that is his main weapon to destroy confidence in believers is his accusation. See, when you go, Lord, please forgive me for doing this, then Satan says, and that. He reminds you of your sin. See, some of you have been raised that the Holy Spirit reminds you of your sin, but the Bible never says that. Holy Spirit convicted me of that sin. No, your own conscience convicts you. It says your conscience will convict you, but the Holy Spirit won't. The only thing he'll do to the Christian is convince you that you're righteous. And see, some of you right now, you, think I, you don't think I know what I'm talking about. I assure you I do. And that little place in John where you're thinking about that you might have heard one time, he said he will convict the world of sin because they don't believe in him. Unless you're a sinner and end the world, Holy Spirit's not going to remind you. But he is going to remind the world that are lost of their sin, and he's going to put God's standard up, which is the law, in, in, in hopes that it will cause them to give up in utter frustration of trying to obtain righteousness through keeping rules, and that they will, they will just be destroyed and killed by their attempt, and they will realize they need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. That's the purpose of law. The law is to lead us to Christ. Is that what the Bible says? The law is your schoolmaster. It carries you to Christ. It's like the bus driver carries you to school, drops you off. But once he drops you off, you don't need the bus driver. You're like, you can go on now. I'm here. You don't need a bus driver coming in there, setting his class with you all day, holding your hand, nothing. Because he's done what his job is to get you there. The law's done its job once you were born again. It got you to Christ. And now your life is in him and, and by his, his spirit. Are you all okay with this? So instead of two weak people or one strong and, one, and weak making a marriage covenant, if you will, and not being able to keep it, God enters into a covenant with himself on mine and your behalf. So you're not in it. You can't mess it up. You benefit from it. Now listen to me. Every Christian that I've ever met who believes they can lose their salvation, and I ask them how they can lose it, and this, this, this is what 100% of them tell me. They always give me a reason that involves them. They say, well, what if I do this sin? Well, what if I did that? Well, what if I did this, or what if I did that? And, and, and listen, they place themselves and their performance at the centerpiece of the equation. But you're not at the centerpiece. See, when me and Jill made covenant each other, you, you wasn't in that. You might have observed it, and you might be benefiting from it, but it was between me and her. So you got no say over that. You understand? When God made a covenant with himself, you, you, you ain't got no say in that. You, you, you benefit from that. But see, in other words, so what you do in your performance can't mess up mine and Jill's covenant because you ain't in that. I didn't make a covenant with you based on your performance. Are, are y'all getting this? So when God made this covenant, because you become his seed when you put your faith in him, the seed of God, that's why in 1 John says that we cannot sin because the seed of God remains in him. You are the seed of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and so every Christian that I've ever heard try to convince me that they can lose their salvation, they always make themselves the focus, themselves the center, and they exalt their sin above God's Son. And they say that what they've done is stronger than what Jesus done on the cross. And that's deception. And you're actually accusing that your power of sin is stronger than the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That what you've done is stronger than what Jesus has done on the cross. Because, listen, if your sin can undo what Jesus did, then that makes your sin stronger than Jesus. Another one I'll hear, some people say, well, just, you know, you won't never really be, you know, so-and-so, and so you won't never be right, you won't never be free, you won't never be, until you die. Then once you die, then you'll be free. People that talk like that, they don't mean to, but they claim death is your Savior. That's what they're saying. They're saying death will save you. 
In other words, Jesus can't save you. His power is impotent. You, you know, he, what he did on the cross is impotent for you. But once you physically die, that'll save you. Then you'll be right. I was raised on that. Won't it be wonderful there? When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. But until we get there, what a day of mourning and depression and agony on me. Hee-haw, deep, dark depression. Y'all too young for that. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Listen, you're, me and you are not the center. Jesus is the center. The center of the covenant. So it's not about our faithfulness to the covenant. It's about his faithfulness to his covenant that he made with himself. It's, it's, it's not about our ability to keep anything. It's because... Because, listen to me, because it's not about our obedience. The Bible says through the disobedience in Romans 5, the disobedience of, because of the disobedience of how many men? One man, many were made what? Sinners. So, I've asked you this before, we've got some new people. How many sins do you have to commit to be called a sinner? Thank you. That means y'all listen. You heard what he said, he said none. I always get one. People say, one. You, once you commit one, then you're called. No, no. The Bible says because of the disobedience of one man. Who was that one man that disobeyed? Adam. How many besides me think that's kind of a bum deal, really, on, you know, initially? When you, like, so he did it. I get credit for his disobedience deposited into my account. And now I am made, not just called. I is one. I'm born a sinner. I'm made a sinner. And so what is it normal for a sinner to do? Sin. Fishermen do what? Hunters do what? Sinners do what? Sin. So I was made a sinner. Therefore, I did the only thing that I can possibly do. I sin. And I was pretty good at it. You have a license to sin? I sin without a license. That there is itself is a sin. Somebody says grace is a license to sin. Stupid phrases we have. So I was made a sinner. By what? By anything I'd done? So what I did or didn't do didn't make me a sinner, did it? What made me a sinner? What? Who's, who's disobedience? So what Adam did made me what I am. I was born a sinner. So even when I sin, God's not looking at I'm mad at Dale because he sinned. God says that Adam's one messed up. So God sent Adam again. The Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. Don't call him the second. Because if there's a second, it might be a third. And if there's a third, it might be a fourth. There's only one Adam in the garden. And then there's going to be a last Adam in the garden. The first Adam blowed it up in the garden. The last Adam sewed it up in the garden. The first... <laughs> Y'all come... The first Adam was put to sleep, and his side was opened up, and out came his wife. The last Adam was put to sleep on the cross. His side was opened up, and out came his wife, the church. The first Adam disobeyed and brought judgment and sin and condemnation upon his seed. But the last Adam obeyed, and he brought righteousness and sanctification and holiness to his seed. See, when Adam in the garden sinned, I got credit. Didn't want it, wasn't fair, got credit for what he did. I was made a sinner. But that same verse in Romans 5, 17, but by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And when will you be righteous? Not when you die and get to heaven, but when you put your faith in him. Ephesians 4.24 says, Paul said, church, come on, put on the new man, which was, past tense, created in, according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, you're, you're made righteous. You don't achieve it, you receive it. Man, I'm preaching this morning now. You receive it. And so... Just like it wasn't fair to me get Adam's transgression accredited to my account, it ain't fair for me and you to get Christ's righteousness 
and obedience accredited to my account. Now, let me, so when Adam sinned in the garden and I got called a sinner, do you know even though I was a sinner before I received Jesus as my Savior, you know, that I would have moments of being a pretty good fella. I would, I would do good deeds. I would be benevolent, generous, kind, giving, loving even. But no matter how many benevolent deeds or acts of service I did, it would not liberate me from being a sinner. So nothing that I could do or perform would change my identity because I had been made a sinner, not by what I did, but what Adam did. Is that right? So when I received Christ, the old me was crucified with him. I died. A whole new person was raised up, no longer in the image of Adam, but in the image of Christ. And now, because of his obedience, it is now accredited to my account. So now, in the same token, now listen, now you just told me you believed that in Adam being made a sinner, you could do all the righteous deeds you want to, and it wouldn't change it. You'd still be a sinner at the end of the day, according to God. Right or wrong? You agree with that or not? If you don't get at it, no, I'm just teasing. Uh, <laughs> you agree with that? Okay, I'm just teasing. Listen, but so, in, so you're saying that's the power of sin, right? That's what the whole Old Testament shows you is the power of sin. So, so you said ain't nothing they can do change it. You're still a sinner. Until when? Until you put your faith in Jesus. You said you agree with that. Okay, now that we've put our faith in Jesus, now every, every act of obedience he's ever done has accredited to my account forever. And so just like when I was a sinner and I could do righteous things and it wouldn't make me righteous, now that I have been declared righteous by God, I can do unrighteous things, but it won't make me unrighteous. Because if now I can do unrighteous things and it will make me, you know, not right with God. You're out of fellowship with God and all the other lies you've heard in church. If I, if I can do something unrighteous and it will make me unrighteous, then that means what the first Adam did is stronger than what the last Adam did. How can you dare claim that? I'm in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he really is a new creation. All the old way of relating to God, those things are in the past. And all things now in my life have become new in Christ Jesus. And I am now not going to be. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I know I don't always look righteous and I don't always behave righteous and I don't always act righteous. But that's because you can't see the real me. The real me is my spirit man. And my spirit man has been perfected forever and made righteous before God. And I'm as righteous as I'm ever going to be. And when you get to heaven, you're not going to be any better than you are now if you're born again. Other than you get a glorified body, won't get no cancer, won't get tired, won't get no disease, won't ever get sick, won't need your glasses. Come on now. I don't know if y'all have heard this so much that you, you know, that's why you ain't just happy about it. I don't know what it is. Hebrews 7 and 21 says, For they have become priests without an oath before. But he with an oath, talking about Jesus, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, will not relent, you are a priest forever according to what? Order of what? Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So now listen, the book of Hebrews is wrote to who? To the Hebrews, which are Jews. So when they first heard him saying this in Hebrews, they're like, wait a minute now, Melchizedek. I seem like I remember. That's a weird name. I remember that. And, they, and the first time Melchizedek shows up in the Bible is in Genesis 14. I'm just going to read verses 18, 19, and 20. But this is, they remember that Abraham met this mystery man, this mystery priest, uh, in Genesis 14. Verse 18 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Say bread and wine. Say communion. Do we still do communion today? I just want to check. He was the priest of God most high. And that says Mel Melchizedek was priest. But it also said in this verse he's a king. 
You see, now we got a king. Salem means what? Peace. So we got a we got a king, and we also got a priest. And then he says, in verse nineteen, and he blessed him. Now Melchizedek is blessing Abram, Abraham, and he said, now notice which comes first. God's blessing first. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, some of you think that he's saying that God possesses heaven and earth. No, he's telling Abraham you possess heaven and earth. And then he says, and, and blessed be God most high. Now he turns the attention to God. Blessed be God most high. And then he says this, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So now he's a prophet because he knows things that he shouldn't know. He's delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says this last little phrase, and he gave him a what? Of how much? Of all. So notice it don't say he paid tithes. Most of you have been raised up in church that you've got to pay your tithes like a light bill. If you don't, God will cut your lights off. Y'all don't shout. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham gave a how much? Tenth part of what? A tithe means what? Tenth, ten percent, okay? First being translated king of righteousness. King of what? And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, now he's talking about Melchizedek, without father, without mother. How many of you are in here without a father and a mother? No, you all had one or you wouldn't be here, okay? Uh, without genealogy, there's no generation behind this guy. Having neither beginning nor days nor end of life. Now, I can read that to any seventh grader and they'll tell you that's Jesus. But made like, in case you didn't hear, if you're dull of hearing, he says he liked the Son of God because he is the Son of God. The, Melchizedek is the pre-incarnated Son of God talking to Abraham. And it says he remains a priest how long? He's the only one that remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was. Melchizedek, great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave, not paid, a tenth of the spoils. Now nobody that other than Jesus Christ can meet this description. You agree with that? Scott, that's, that's Jesus. And so listen, listen, listen to me what tithe does here. Giving a tenth declares that this man's great. In other words, when Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, by giving that tenth, you know what he's doing? He's actually making a proclamation or a declaration that this man is great and that he's greater than me. And, and so giving a tenth, is a, listen, is a declaration of the greatness of God in your life. Now Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 5 says this, And indeed those who are the sons of Levi, listen, listen to this, who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. Now, he's talking about this in the New Covenant, and he's talking about the old Levitical system. That is, from their brethren, listen, that though they have come from the loins of Abraham, verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed who had the promises. Now, listen to me. Who is it that we just read that does not have a genealogy that comes from the Levites? I need to hear his name. All right. So Jesus, who does not have the lineage of the Levitical priesthood, because that Melchizedek was this new priesthood, Jesus. Didn't I just read to you several verses that says Jesus now is our high priest, right? And if he's now our high priest, and if he's not a Levite, Levitical priesthood, what kind of priesthood is it? It's not a Levitical priesthood. That doesn't exist anymore. That has been put away, done away with. It's not a hard question, y'all. I, I know y'all. I don't. What priesthood is it now? Melchizedek. So if you're a believer, the Levitical priesthood has nothing to do with you. Yet I still hear pastors telling their people they're Levites, telling their praise team they're Levites, telling, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. They need to read the Bible before they go to preaching it. The, the Levitical priesthood doesn't exist anymore. Doesn't exist. Now we're under a new priesthood, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And in that name may sound like a weird long name, but in that name, the actual Hebrew of that name means king of Salem, king of righteousness. So he's a king and he's also a priest and he's also prophetic. And so what God says here, now listen to me, 
verse 6 again, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, but he received tithe. Now let me ask you this. Look at me. If I went to the hospital and prayed for somebody and they got healed instantly, okay, and as soon as they realized they were healed, they started praising me. They started saying, Dale, I just give you praise. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. What do you think I would do? And those of you that even think you know me, what, what do you think I would do if they did that? Would, let me ask you this. Would I receive that praise? No, I, I wouldn't, would I? What would I do? I would rebuke them for praising me. And I would say, praise God, for he alone is, is Jehovah Rapha. He alone. And so he deserves all praise, all the glory, and all the honor. Is that right? Would you consider that appropriate scenario if that happened to me? Okay, so it would be wrong for me to receive it, right? Okay, so listen to me now. Here is Jesus receiving tithes. So for all those folks who say tithes is not to be received, would Jesus receive something that's not right to receive? But yet right here it just says he received it. And not only did he receive it, but he blessed him. But he blessed him before he received it. Which came first, Abraham giving, not paying, giving the tithe, or the blessing that came upon Abraham? Which came first? The blessing. So he's not earning anything. God already blessed him. He was blessed before he tithed. He was blessed. Verse 7. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So who is the lesser between Melchizedek and Abraham? Who would you say the lesser there is? Not hard, Abraham. Who's the better? Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is blessing the lesser because he's the better. Is that right? Now here, we're in the New Testament now. We're deep in the New Testament here in Hebrews. Look in verse 8. Here, here on earth, here right now at the writing of this, here mortal men receive tithes. But there, what do you think there is? Won't it be wonderful having no burdens to bear? When we all get there, what a day of rejoicing that will. Okay, now do you know where there is? But now here, mortal men receive tithes. But there, he, who do you think he is there? Jesus receives them. Rut row. Now, a lot of my grace brothers say you, you don't tithe. I disagree. I don't have the faith they have. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there, he, Jesus, receives them. Do you think Jesus would keep receiving something that he's not supposed to receive? Do you think Jesus would receive something that we're not supposed to give? What if I said, I give you all the blame and the condemnation of the sin of this world, Jesus? Do you think he'd receive that? No, he's already received it. He's not going to receive it. The judgment of God. You understand on the cross? Of whom, listen, look in verse 8 again. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So listen, listen to me. Male, who is Jesus whose genealogy is not Levi, yet he receives tithes. And, and, and so here, mortal men receive them. But then it says that when they do give them, when he receives them there, listen to what it says in the Bible, it is a witness that he lives. All right, so you get two things here. You got bread and wine, which is communion. Everybody say communion. All right, so, so we got communion here. We got elements of communion. First time it appears in Scripture is that, that Jesus, Melchizedek, brought out bread and wine, and he gave that. To Abram. Is that right? Now, when he's giving him bread and wine, what is he really giving him? Himself. He's giving himself. Remember, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. So he's giving himself. Is that right, y'all? All right. So now here, I just read for you, it says that when, you, when he receives these tithes, what it is is a declaration. Not when Abram gave him, it was a declaration that this one man is greater of the greatness of this man, that I'm the lesser, he's the, he's the better. And secondly, what it does is when we give tithes, you know what it says? It's a declaration that he lives. So every time that you make that walk up front after we prayed that prayer declaration, I go about tithes and you walk up and put your tithe and offering here and you give it. 
then what you did to everybody that saw you do that, you just declared that the reason I'm doing this is because God still lives. And that he's better and I'm lesser. And I'm declaring that he's great in my life. And I trust him. Now, when we do communion, the Bible says every time you do communion, you do also this in remembrance of my death. Is that right? So listen, listen to these two elements. Here, here are your bookends. Here's your bookends. You know what I mean? So the first one is communion. That declares that he died. Tithe declares that he lives. We got a lot of Christians just living. They'll take communion in a heartbeat, but they won't give God any offering and tithe and declare that he's alive in their life. Because the only reason for not doing that, if God deserves the glory and the honor, and, and so if you, if you say, I asked you that a while ago, but how many of you believe that, that the Lord deserves honor? How many believe that God deserves honor today? Well, let me, let me make it easier for you. We'll take you another. How many believes that God deserves glory? Give unto the Lord the glory that's due unto his name. But the Bible is replete with verses that command us to give him honor. So now how many would agree that we're to steal in 2017 to give God honor for he deserves our honor? How many believes that? All right. I want to show you one way that you give God honor. And it's not my opinion. Proverbs 3, 9. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord. And if it ended there, that would be cool. But it tells us specifically how to honor the Lord. With your what? Not with my possessions, with your possessions. Honor the Lord with your possessions. See, I, you, you, something you have to honor the Lord with your possessions, and then he describes what, how, what your possessions to honor with the first fruits of how much of you increase. I didn't even put the next, the next verse, but the next verse says, so that your barns may be overflowing. Not that the church's checkbook would be overflowing. But it says that there's something about releasing honor because this is the principle in the Bible that says honor releases life. Dishonor releases death. So when you honor, you're just releasing the life. One thing that is tragically missing in the American culture is the lack of honor in every area. No honor for law enforcement, no honor for elders, no honor for people in any kind of position of responsibility and authority. This is a nation of dishonor as a whole. And so why, why do you think we've got so much death in the streets? No, because of lack of honor. Lack of honor. I'd have never dreamed of myself disobeying any person of authority, much less a, a police. I mean, one time I was supposed to be driving. I was 15 years old. I was driving at 15 because we was a crazy generation. And so I drive the back roads. I just love to drive. But I was always terrified. Why? Because I was in violation of the law. And I was on a, in a country road. It was paved. I was, uh, you know, actually I had a date. Easy. Careful in there. She don't know about it. She won't be. But I was headed to Nashville, Georgia. First date with this girl. Got my own ride, but I'm 15. And I got a learner's, and I come around the curve, and there stood the, the GSP, the Georgia State Patrol, in the license check. I mean, what you going to do? I'm just going to try to, I'm just like, God, please, let's let him just glance at it and think I got a license, let me tell you. I mean, they're looking for that. He looked at that. He said, you know it's a learner's permit. He said, pull the car to the side. Now, we only got one trooper there because this is out in the country doing this check. So people are coming and going. So I just sat there and sat there and sat there and sat there. And I worked at a gas station. I pumped gas all day long for my job. And so them fumes really make your eyes bloodshot. And one time he walked over there to me between checking other cars. He said, you've probably been smoking weed or something. He said, your eyes are all bloodshot. He said, you been smoking weed today? I'm like, no, man, I work at a gas station. He said, I don't believe you. He said, you just sat right there. I sat there for an hour and a half. An hour and a half. And, and I'm, you know, but I'm, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not going to say, how much longer, dude? Let's move this along. I got a date. My date was done over then. And here comes a buddy of mine coming the opposite way. Had an eight-pack of Pony Millers. I don't know y'all know what that was. But he had an eight-pack of Pony Millers in the floorboard of the passenger front seat. 
in his purple uh, GTO car, and uh, but he was legal. I guess he didn't see that. There wasn't nothing open. Somebody can't do nothing. And and so I'm like, I said, sir. I said, since you said I can't leave and he's not gonna let me go, I need to go get my daddy and all. Somebody come get the car and all, cause he done wrote me out the ticket. And I said, can I? I know that guy. Can I go with him? He said, well, go with him. So I get in the car. And mom, mom, daddy ain't here today, so might not tell us who's But I go. But that's this is back before daddy was saved. <laughs> my daddy wasn't even good and saved. In you know. This. So it was Saturday, so Daddy had been enjoying some beverages. And so I told Daddy how the trooper treated me and accused me. Actually, one time he grabbed my arm and just pushed me up aside his car and was real rough with me. I actually physically did that. And, uh, but when I told Daddy about it, he didn't appreciate all that. But he knows better to drive out there. So he got my mama to drive him out there. So me and my mama driving and my daddy here in Toby, my daddy's just He's, he has, we're known for the young temper. That's not, that's not a generational trait. That he's laughing. Anyway, but, uh, so we go out there, and my daddy, you know, walks up to this trooper while he's checking everybody's license, and he tells him, yes, what he thought about him. And none of that was good. And then my daddy says, get in the car, Dale, you drive. And he just wanted to just kind of, you know, tick the trooper off, because I still get to drive. Because I got an adult now, you know. So as, as I'm getting in the car to drive, the trooper, my dad's getting on the passenger side of my car. He says, bring me your license to my dad. My dad said, if you want them, come get them. Y'all know Paul G. Before he got saved. And he said, and as soon as my daddy said, if you want to come get them, he said, you're under the arrest. He said, you're under arrest for obstruction of officer. And dad said, I ain't under no arrest. And here we go. Then my mama, she's hanging her head out the car, and she's telling that trooper off, and she's giving him all this and that, you know. <laughs> I mean, we South Georgia redneck on this guy. We going, I mean, we, we you know. Uh, so then I'm talking about, you ain't finna arrest my daddy, and, and we all out there, you know. And he reaches, I'm, I'm not making any of this up. This, back in those days, they still had the 357 revolver. He reaches and pops the little clip, the little uh, leather strap on that 357, and he put his hand on it. And he told my daddy, he said, you're going to jail with me one way or the other. Now, even as many beverages my daddy had, I think he kind of got more alert then. <laughs> and he went and got in the car. And, they put, and, and he done all that and put my daddy in the back of the patrol car. And I went and got in the car with Mama. And we followed the thing up to the Cook County Courthouse where my daddy's cousin, D.J. Connell, was the sheriff. And if you ever seen the movie Gator with Burt Reynolds, DJ's right in the front of the movie. When it starts standing, he's standing there over here at Banks Lake, and he's in right in the movie, right out in front. DJ Connor, he's our second cousin. So when Trooper brought him in, DJ looked at Daddy, because DJ lived in the courthouse in those days. The sheriff lived in the courthouse. At least there he did. And he said, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul said, this, sorry, you know. And uh, DJ said, he said, y'all got this. Just leave his ticket and go on. And DJ looked at it. He said, y'all go on to the house. Now, my dad still had to go to court because that was a felony involving instruction or something. I don't know what it is. But I, I, all I'm telling you, that's just an interesting story. But about rebellion, <laughs> no respect and no honor. And you got to understand that today you and I should be examples of that now I, I'm, I'm, I just want to end this with this and I, and and I'm when you talk about I mean there's only three men in the Bible that got the revelation of the order of Melchizedek the only three people in the whole Bible all 66 books who even mention it Abram had the revelation of Melchizedek and then David King David too long to, to tell but King David in Psalm 110 got the revelation of Melchizedek after he was trying to bring the ark home anybody remember David trying to bring the ark of the covenant back remember how that first uh, episode didn't go so well and you remember how the, the ark almost stumbled because they were bringing it on an ox cart and it and, and and then it almost fell off when they hit a, a threshing floor or bump in the road and a good man with good intentions named Uzza, Uzza he tried to stabilize it, keep it from falling. That's just that's kind of sweet, isn't it? He don't want it to fall off, and it, and and, I'm, and it says God killed him. 
killed him dead right there. And because why? They're under law. A lot of people don't understand that. And the Bible says that David responded to emotions. He was afraid of God that day, and he was angry at God that day. You ever had those emotions about God? You've been angry with him, and then you've also been afraid of him because you saw tragedy and stuff hit, and you didn't know why? What was going on there? David was trying to approach God, and he was breaking a lot of God's laws, and he was under the Levitical system. See, they was carrying the ark on what? On a what? New cart. You know what a cart's made up of? Boards and big wheels. And boards, committees, and big wheels will never bring the glory of God to Zion. The Bible said under even the Levitical system, you got to carry the ark on the shoulders of sanctified Levites. Is that right? And now when David went back, he was mad with God, and for, 30, uh, for uh, 90 days he didn't know what to do. And for 90 days he read the Bible. It would, it would serve us well for some of us to go home and read the Bible for 90 days, when, when, especially when things blow up in our face that we thought was right. You can't have a right motive but do it the wrong way and still get blessing. You, there's the right way. And it blew up, and David studied, and David said, we did it wrong. And, and listen to me. He said, that, for we sought not God after the proper order. You know what that proper order was? The order of Melchizedek. There is a way that when you give, that it won't produce what the life that God intended it to give. So I know a lot of you have had the Hades beat out of you in churches when it came to messages about giving and tithing. And I don't have time today, but they use Malachi. And I used to do this very same thing, echoing what I heard other preachers do. So I'm none better. But I've learned better now because I've read the Bible. First of all, the book of Malachi is not God using Malachi to rebuke the Israelites for them not tithing. God is rebuking the priesthood for mishandling the tithe. In Malachi 3, I think beginning in verse 8, is where you've all had, you know, been, you know, char you know so bring you all the tithe in the storehouse. Well, that may be meat in my house. Is that right? And it says, and God said, if you'll do this, he'll do what? He'll open up the what? The windows of heaven. He'll pour upon you a blessing that you're unable to receive it all. Is that right? And then he'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. I promise you most churches in Valdosta Austin receive tithe. About half of them probably quoted that one this morning. They do it every Sunday. And they've said that if you'll tithe, that God will rebuke the devourer for you. Is that, how many has heard what I just said in church before? You have heard it in church. Okay? This is, I devote a whole chapter in my book for this. So I... It, I need to know it's legit, okay? I do not believe that if you don't tithe, you're under a curse. That means they've been threatened with you're under a curse if you don't tithe. And that, 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 that God will turn you over to the devourer or you'll be devoured because you didn't do it. Because that's what it says in Malachi. It says that God will rebuke the devourer if you tithe. So therefore, if you don't tithe, it's logic that you're going to be devoured. How many has ever been a faithful giver and a tither? and yet have been devoured financially at times in your life, besides me. Could I see any, I got any help and hope? And, hold your hands up now. This is something you don't get asked in church. So look around. These are people that said to me that they have been faithful in tithing and giving, and yet there's been moments, times, and seasons where they have been devoured financially. I guess God taking a nap during that time. Because you just told me that if you would do that, that he would rebuke the devourer for you. But why, why didn't he rebuke him then? You just told me you got devoured. He didn't do good, did he? God lied. He said, if you tithe and give, I rebuke the devourer. He didn't rebuke the devourer. You got devoured. Some of you declared bankruptcy. While being a Christian, while giving your tithe, you went under. And some of you have been confused and hurt, discouraged. Some of you go around now and you preach and teach a theology that tithing don't work. And you base that on your experience. We've got to stop basing the, interpreting the Bible based on our experience and start interpreting our experience based on the Bible. Big difference. And now I've learned that paying tithes is Levitical. The Bible says that they paid tithes to the Levites for their services rendered. I'm telling you, that's what it says. I've pastored 31 years now. You know what people do when they get mad? First thing they'll do is quit writing that check. The second thing they'll do is whatever seat they sit in, they'll move further to the back. And the third thing they'll do is they'll drop slime out of church. Sometimes they'll stay in church because they'll go, by God, this is my church, and I was here before you got here, preacher, and I'll be here long after you gone. So what they'll do is they'll quit tithing in hopes to starve the man of God out, and then once they come back, they'll start back again. They use tithing as a weapon. And, and, and let me ask you this. Why did they quit tithing? Because they don't like the services being rendered. So they're not giving tithe to God because God's services is constant and unchangeable. 
So they're paying for services rendered. So if they don't like the singing, don't like the building, don't like the preacher, they don't like the services, so they're going to stop paying for the services. See how messed up that is? It happens all the time in the American church. still happens. Okay, but I'll tell you a better deal than that. That's Levitical. That don't count no more. You, you, you don't pay tithes because you don't owe tithes. And if you're here today and you don't want to pay tithes, you're free, and God still loves you. Now, uh, can you all put up that comparison? All right, here's the law. Here is Melchizedek, grace. So under the law, tithe is paid. Under grace, it is given. Temporary priesthood under the law. Eternal priesthood through Jesus. In the law, continual sacrifice for sin. One sacrifice for sin and for all. Under the law, sin is covered. Atoned for. It's what atonement means, covered and remembered. Under Melchizedek grace, sin's removed and forgotten. Jesus is the lamb that took away sin. Amen, lamb of God. You uh, uh, eat the fruit of the ground. Remember it says, and I will bless the fruit of your ground. The vine will not give forth before time. Under Malachi 3, they're eating what? From the dirt. Under this, he's fed with heavenly bread, heavenly wine. Levitical law, no power to rebuke the devourer, power to rebuke the devourer. Now, see, you want to blame it on God. But under this new covenant, Melchizedek, from, from Genesis to Malachi, you'll never find one person, no matter how great, Abraham, Isaac, Jeremiah, Elisha, Elijah. Listen, you'll, listen, you'll never find one human rebuking the devil. You think I just lied. I'm telling you, it's not there. You won't find them casting out a demon. You won't, you won't find anything about that in there. Why? They have no power over the demons. No power over the devil. But under grace, first signs shall follow them to believe. They shall cast out demons. So now what do you do as a believer? You see things start devouring your finance. Because I want to tell you, I've, been, I've had seasons of attack on my finance through, through health, medical bills, and, and that devoured. We had a thing at the house this past week. We ate some noodles that cost us $1,000, didn't we, baby? Tuesday, a plumber comes, shortening the story, <clears throat> charged me $260, and I really needed it because he said your clog is 25 feet inward in the line. When all that cleaned up, when he cleaned it and got the water out, we got a ruin. So then I get on DIY and search it on YouTube, and I tried three separate remedies that night. They told me that if I do it like this, it would cure it, and I could get the fit. All liars. Didn't work. She goes to Lowe's to buy that exact sink because you got to buy the exact sink. You got to go right back with it, undermount. So the same day that I'm waiting on the washing machine guy, we get the plumber. And I just kind of look around and I go, you, I'm being devoured. I'm being devoured in every area of my life here, it looks like. It, it, it's just, it's just.